0: Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 24 where Paul was reading for us earlier. It might seem like a strange title for a message from Ezekiel, but you'll understand why I've entitled the morning's message, Why There Must Be a Rapture. Again, why there must be a rapture. Ezekiel 24, verse 24 Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you according to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And you, son of man, will it not be in that day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, On that day, one who escapes will come to you to let you hear with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped, and you shall speak, and you will no longer be mute. Thus, you will be a sign to them, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. The background for this As I wanna point out, there's a reason that Ezekiel is mute, and I'll come to that in a second. But Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem and has been in Jerusalem a little bit longer uh, than Ezekiel has been in Babylon. He's been there for 40 long years. He's a broken-hearted prophet with a broken-hearted message Uh, His message was the same message for, for 40 years, and that is they're going to be held in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Now, meanwhile, God has Ezekiel in Babylon with those taken captive during the other two sieges against Jerusalem. It's important to understand that Nebuchadnezzar just didn't come down with one attack. It was in three different stages. And while Ezekiel is speaking this message here, the third one has not yet happened. So you have captives that were taken during the first two sieges living in Babylon. And the problem is that he has false prophets there who are telling them, don't worry about a thing, everything's going to be fine, you're going to be going back to Jerusalem after all, do you think? That the Lord would allow his temple to be destroyed. So this is what he is up against. And now the final sign, because what we have in in this chapter here is um, vindication on both Jeremiah's part and Ezekiel's part. When it talks about captives coming, uh, he's referring to As we get to this chapter here, this is the first time that Ezekiel has dated his message. If you go back to verses 1 and 2, it gives us the time. And what basically he's saying at at the end of, of this chapter here is it's already happened. Jerusalem has been taken. The temple is destroyed. And there's going to be people coming to you, and when it refers to the captives... I'm going to keep you mute. You're not going to speak. One thing we've learned as we've been going through Ezekiel is over and over again, he's been very repetitive with parables and skits and signs. And this right here where it says, our, go back to our, our text, this Ezekiel is a sign to you. Well, what was the sign? Well, um, we find here that Ezekiel... The Lord is going to allow his wife to die, back in verse 15. And then he says, when she does die, I want you to keep silent. I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to say anything. And the people are going to become inquisitive. And they're going to say, what's, what's the matter? You just, your wife just died, and you're not sighing. You're not saying anything, and you're mute. And so when we read here, this will be a sign to you according to all that has been done. It's going to remain that way until, until everything that he's been saying is now coming to pass. So when we read in verse 27, on the day your mouth will be open to him who has escaped, he's referring to those that actually witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. They've made their way now to to Babylon. Um, Some escaped as captives, others were taken as prisoners, and thus this will be a sign to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. It's sort of like John the Baptist. His, his father um, um, was, was serving in the temple, and Gabriel showed up and told him he was going to have a son in his old age. And um, he didn't believe it. And Gabriel, I, I try to put myself in the picture, I think Gabriel was personally offended. He said, I stand in the very presence of the holy living God. And I've just given you a message. But because you doubt what I have to say, you're not going to be talking for a while. And it wasn't until John was born that the Lord opened his mouth again because he should have been named after his father, but he wasn't his name shall be called John. So sort of the same thing that the Lord does here. Now, at this very moment, Jerusalem has been destroyed. And later on, the word came to the captivities about its destruction. And it came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity in the 10th month on the 15th day of the month that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came to me saying, the city is smitten. We're getting to that in Ezekiel 33, verse 21. The city has been smitten. Into the camp came these stragglers. And um, now we get to this major portion of, of the book of Ezekiel that both of their messages have been the same. They have not wavered. They've had opposition saying this, this could never ever happen God would never allow such a thing. And we've been making a connection a lot with the times that we live in believing we see a lot of the signs that point to judgment a great judgment. We'll get into it in just a little bit. But for right now, if you just turn back to chapter 22, again, I want to point out the problem. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 25, it says, The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in their midst. Her priests, or the religious leadership, have violated my laws, profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them. In other words, they're making it up as they go. Thus says the Lord God, When the Lord had not spoken, the people of the land have used oppression, committed robbery, mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Verse 30 is important. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. He pleaded with them to turn from their ways. Here the false prophets are saying everything is fine. We're getting along nicely. And yet the Lord says no. You're getting exactly what you deserve. Because I gave you the opportunities. I sent the prophets to you. The true prophets. And you simply would not listen. Now this reminds me of Stephen. The first martyr in the Christian church. When he got up. And um, the spirit of the Lord was on this man, so much so before he died, it says, his, his face began to shine and glow. I'm quoting now from Acts 7. In this speech, this is what Stephen says to the religious leaders who are about to kill him and also eventually the Lord himself. He says, which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have slain them which have showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now uh, the betrayers and murderers. Which, which prophet that God sent didn't you kill? Reading about it in Hebrews, it says some of them were cut asunder. That's what happened to Isaiah. They actually cut uh, Isaiah in two. And this verse here, there is a verse that says, at the eyes of the Lord... Uh, they they go to and fro over the face of the whole earth, looking. He's just looking for people, not with abilities, but availability. Who's just willing? And that's how Isaiah got called. Who's going to go for me? It was put in a question form. Who can I send? Who will go? It wasn't ability, because most of these guys, when they're called, says, (laughs) it can't be me. You know, I, I think of Moses. Moses, you're my man. Well, I got a problem. I can't talk. On the other hand, Aaron, my brother here, he's a great communicator. Here's your man. He says, no, I'll put the words in your mouth and you let me take care of the rest. And, and the same with um, Jeremiah. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm a youth. who's called f- from the womb to be a prophet. But he says, I'm not your man because I'm not a speaker. And um, God delights in using simple people so that people will not think that it had anything to do with the instrument, but that the Lord would get the glory. So he, he picks old hippies and ski bums and people like that <laughs> and so forth to do, to do his communicating to some, not always, but some. The Bible says, Look among you, not many wise, not many noble are called. There's some, but not many. Now, as we, we look at this, and if I would sum it up, Judgment has, has finally come. God always brings warning before judgment, without exception. For 120 years, through Noah, he warned of the coming flood. I couldn't help but think of Jesus' condemnation of the religious leaders in his own time. And I want you to go there to Matthew chapter 23, And one thing I want to point out as you're turning is in Ezekiel 23 and 24, we have the condemnation and then the judgment. And I thought, what an interesting coincidence that Jesus lays into the religious scribes and Pharisees and then he talks in chapter 24 of the great judgment that's coming that we refer to as the tribulation. Again, as you make your way through the scriptures, all these little nuggets pop up see things you've never seen before so in Matthew chapter 23 I'm not going to read the whole thing but he is addressing now and I guess if it's one thing that the Lord could not handle it was the hypocrisy of the religious leaders woe to you verse 13 scribes and Pharisees you hypocrites for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, those are pretty harsh words. You hypocrites, you think you're going to heaven? You're not. And you actually prevent others uh, from doing so. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. What was one of the complaints that the Lord said to Ezekiel? You don't care for the poor. You don't take care of the widow. You have no heart at all for the things that I have a heart for. Your interest is only in your own self-preservation. And houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one uh, prostitute, and when they are one, you make them twice as much the son of hell as yourselves." Woe to you, blind guides. And he goes on and on and on. Let's skip ahead to verse 34, where he says, Therefore. All right, when there's a therefore, it means he's now going to give clarity to everything he's set up to this verse. So he lays into him all the way up to this verse, and then he says, Therefore. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar now i don't i think he's given revelation to these guys and um, it's almost when you go through the, the gospel of john the Lord is always telling and giving information that he would be the only one who know. The person he would be speaking to, they would know, but nobody else would know. I think that's what's happening here. I think he's giving them some information, and he says, by the way, I know all about that. And um, assuredly, I say to you, all these will come upon uh, this generation. And then he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone, those who are sent to her, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. How often I wanted to gather you under together as a hen gathers her her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. They were not willing in Ezekiel's time, and now he's saying in his own generation that um, they're not willing even yet. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, You shall see me no more till I say to you, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I wasn't planning on getting sidetracked right now, uh, and it's not in my notes. Um, I have great respect for Amir and um, uh, what he's showing and what he's revealing right now and his insights. But one of the things that, that troubled me And the message that I heard him say was that Jesus can't return until the church says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And my friend, in all due respect, has these two things mixed up. It's the church, the church doesn't have anything to do with the second coming. No man knows the day or the hour. When the Father says it's time, it's time. However, Israel's different. Jesus is speaking to those during the great tribulation who are in Petra, and they are being broken, they've gotten saved, and finally, they call upon their Messiah. And when they say, not the church, but the believers in Petra in the tribulation, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's the right context of this one here. So you might disagree with me on that one. If you do, don't send me any nasty emails. I love Amir very, very much. have much respect for the man. But I do take issue with him on that one point. But as we look at this, God always brings warning before judgment. Because the Pharisees, because of these Pharisees, they were not aware Jesus was the Messiah. They should have been the ones who would be telling the people, he's finally here. We know the scriptures. And um, we know he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He's supposed to ride that colt down. And um, Psalm 118 should be heralded that day. Well, that all happened. But in, instead of the religious leaders saying, There he is, our long-awaited Messiah, they did just the opposite. They said, Teacher, rebuke your followers. They actually think you're the Messiah by them quoting Psalm 118: Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they should have been saying that, the religious leaders. But instead, they actually tell Jesus to rebuke the people that actually believe that. Jesus said, sorry, I can't do it. It's been written. And if they keep silent, then the stones are going to immediately cry out. It had to happen. So, as a result, they wanted to kill him. Just as they wanted to kill Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They did kill Isaiah. Jesus then warns them in Luke 19, just like Jeremiah in Ezekiel, and I find we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Well, there's two times in the Bible that Jesus wept, and this was one of them. It was right after he had said, if they don't worship me, the stones will. Then the emotions change in the very next verse, in uh, Luke 19, as he drew near the city, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, and he saw the city, and he began to weep over it in the same way that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And he said, oh, if only you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, and now the prophecy of future judgment on Jerusalem. So Ezekiel, Jeremiah, warning, and judgment. Now Jesus says, and he prophesies here, the day is April 6, thirty-two AD. For day your days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, like Nebuchadnezzar did, surround you in and close you in on every side, and will level you and your children within you to the ground, and there will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of the visitation. Implication? Implying? They were supposed to know. And the religious leaders were the ones that were supposed to be telling them. Jesus warned of Jerusalem's destruction in exactly the same way that the prophets did in their time before they went into captivity in Babylon. Well, this was fulfilled on the 9th of Av, 38 years later, in 70 A.D., Herod's temple fell. Well, what's interesting is Solomon's temple fell by Nebuchadnezzar on exactly the same day, on the ninth of Av. And anybody here wanting to think that was a coincidence? (laughs) No, no coincidence. So both temples, Solomon's temple, the ninth of Av. Herod's temple, the ninth of Av. Warning, warning, warning. 40 years of warning. And now Jesus, 38 years later, Titus and his 10th legion come down and completely destroy Jerusalem, and they're dispersed into the whole world and have been in the whole world until after World War II and the Holocaust softened the UN. I'll be talking about the UN in just a little bit, but there was a window where they softened up a little bit, and they allowed Israel a homeland, a place for them to be able to, to actually go back to. So these are facts of history, Anybody can um, verify these prophecies by any history book. And the Lord said, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Good place for an amen. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, in Matthew 24, we actually have him describing this great future judgment that's coming. If you look at verses 1 and 2, this is getting close to his last week. And he says in verse one, the, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So now he's talking specifically about the temple. And they had to bend over their heads to some degree. In verse uh, three... He says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, well, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign? It's important that you notice that it's singular and not plural. What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, just like Daniel really only had one question in Daniel chapter 9, Lord, when are we going back? The 70 years is up. And so he's praying a prayer of repentance. He only wants to know one thing. When can we go back? We've been here for 70 years. Likewise, the disciples just want to know one thing. What's the sign um, when you're coming again? But just like Daniel, Daniel receives a whole lot more information than them going back to Jerusalem. He gives them the very day that I talked about earlier, April 6, 32 A.D., You can derive that all in Daniel chapter 9. And then he goes on to give other signs, plural. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. What's the first thing he warns about? For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and deceive many. This is repeated four times. He says, there will arise false prophets. Uh, Verse 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. So this is a sign, too. Look out for the false doctrine. Look out for the false teaching. Look out for the fluffy, make you feel good messages that leave repentance and um, holiness before the Lord. And the volume of the book is really about you (laughs) instead of the volume of the book is really about the Lord Jesus. That's where much of the church today has gravitated towards. He says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not, ne- uh, not yet, for nation will rise against nation. Uh, the, the wording there is ethnic group will rise against ethnic group, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And then he says, and these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, last week I talked about dominionism and Kingdom Now Theology, where much of the church at large has a doctrine that says because of missionaries and world evangelism, um, the world is going to be Christianized. And as a result of the world becoming Christian, then and only then will the Lord come back. Where the scripture, this is the one verse that... um, points out just the opposite is true. So when we look at verses, um, let's pick it up in verses six through, uh, no, let's pick it up in verse 21. Jesus said, during the time of the great tribulation, verse 15 is an event that takes place in the middle of of the seven year period of time that we call the great tribulation. Verse 21 says, and then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time nor ever shall be. And unless those days be shortened, no flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. Jesus says it's the beginning of sorrows, it's gonna get worse and worse and worse, not better and better and better. Is everybody with me on that? When you read the book of Revelation, you have seven seal judgments. Then it jumps from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments. Sometimes we call them the third judgments, but they're more severe than the seal judgments. But then the last set of seven judgments are bowl judgments. And instead of third, it's everything. So we literally have the world laid in waste by the time you get to the end of the final seventh bowl judgment. For then there will be great tribulation. He's referring and he's warning. He's saying there's a time in the future that he's warning about and um, there's other names for it. Some in the Old Testament it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called Daniel's 70th week. It's called the indignation. Please remember that one because I'm going to be quoting from Isaiah shortly on it. Uh, Here, Jesus calls it the great tribulation. Just as sure as Jeremiah and Ezekiel said judgment was coming, you had the mixed multitudes and you had the false prophets. Well, you can be sure this will happen. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away But not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away till it's all fulfilled. So we we find here this order that um, Paul told the church in Thessalonica that they were to know the times and the seasons. The church had only been there for less than a month. And here Paul lays out the whole eschatology big fancy word for a study of last day things, to baby Christians. So I don't, I don't like the, uh, uh, the argument, you know, as a baby Christian, you know, just stick with the Gospel of John, leave Daniel and Revelation for later on. Well, Paul didn't. In a month's time, he says, you guys should know, I told you this stuff already back uh, in First in Thessalonians. And um, he wants us to know the times and the seasons. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, I'm going to bring Israel back again the second time. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that one down. Because the first time, in our study through Ezekiel right now, the word is just beginning the 70 years. And it's it's now happening in the chapters we're in. Well, they're going to come back. But then he said it's going to happen a second time. Well, the second time is what Jesus was referring to when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem when there will not be one stone left upon another. But then Zechariah, and I'm not, you can turn to it if you want to. I'm just going to read the first three verses. When it gets to, well, I got to, uh, let's see, where do I want to put that in? Uh, I'll come back to it in a bit. Remember, singular sign. We'll come back to the singular sign. But the burden of the, I want to make our study this morning as up-to-date as possible because something very major is happening a week from tomorrow. And I'll talk about it in a second. But Zechariah, this is a prophecy said in the last days, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man, Within him, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling or drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it will come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stain for uh, stone for all the nations, and all who heave it away will surely be cut in pieces though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. He's talking about a time yet future when all the nations will look at Jerusalem as a problem. Now, what happened last Friday, December 30th, as Resolution 2334 was um, passed, dealing with the division of the state of Israel. All we had to do, like we've done for 50 times before, is use our authority as the United States of America to veto it, and it would not pass. Instead, our president chose to abstain. And by doing so, his right to veto this Resolution 2334 is now a fact of history. Well, that was step one. What I'm about to read to you is going to happen on January 15th, where, well, it's written, the well-written article is, is worth bringing up this morning because it ties into um, our study. Uh, the writer's name is Michael Schneider. On January 15th, representatives from seven, 70 different countries are going to gather in Paris, France for an unprecedented global conference. The stated goal of this conference is to promote a two-state solution as a way that lasting peace will be brought to the Middle East. In Israel, there's a tremendous amount of concern that whatever is agreed upon at this conference will immediately be used as a basis for a UN Secretary Council resolution that would permanently divide the land of Israel and create a Palestinian state. But things would have to move very rapidly in order for that to happen because Barack Obama's time in the White House comes to an end on January 20th, and Donald Trump has already made it exceedingly clear that he would never support such a resolution. The UN Security Council resolution that was passed on Friday was one of the most significant events that we have witnessed in decades. Resolution 2334, made all Israeli settlements in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem illegal. It set the 1967 ceasefire lines as a border between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And it granted every single inch of East Jerusalem to the Palestines. But it stopped short of giving an official UN Security Council recognition to a Palestinian state And that is why this conference on January 15th is so important. The Israeli government is reportedly fearful that any guidelines agreed in Paris would be turned into another UN resolution before Trump's inauguration. A spokesman for uh, Netanyahu claims to have ironclad evidence that the Obama administration had plotted behind the scenes to promote this U.N. resolution. Israel said it will present evidence against the Obama administration to the upcoming Trump team. If what an Egyptian newspaper is claiming true, then there may very well be an international conspiracy at work against Israel. According to a transcript published by an Arab that I can't even come close to pronouncing his name, (laughs) uh, reported in his newspaper that John Kerry and U.S. National Security Advisor uh, Suzanne Rice met with Palestinian officials in early December and there presented Kerry's plan, which would be, of course, Obama's plan at that time. In a meeting in early December with top Palestinian negotiators, U.S. uh, Secretary of State Kerry told the Palestinians that the U.S. was prepared to cooperate with the Palestinians at the Security Council. Israeli Channel 1 TV said, quoting the Egyptian newspaper. Also present at the meeting were U.S. National Security Advisors Suzanne Rice and uh, Maja Farajah, Director of the Palestinian Authority uh, General Intelligence Service. Kerry here is quoted as saying that he could present his idea for the final solution if the Palestinians pledge they will support their proposed framework. The U.S. official advised Palestinians to travel to Ra'ad to present the plan to the Saudi leaders. The Obama administration, of course, is denying all this, but if it's true... Then the betrayal of Israel by Obama is much deeper than any of us have ever realized. With less than a month to go in his presidency, Barack Obama has decided to launch an all-out attack on Israel. Once Resolution 2334 passed and the uproar against it was limited, the emboldened, that emboldened the Obama administration to go for broke. Now, it looks like they actually could try to get a Palestinian state created before he leaves office on the 20th. And if that happens, it would be absolutely catastrophic for America. You see, the truth is that we have been warned. Please tie this into Ezekiel. Warning, 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 warning. We have been warned for many years that our land will be divided after the land of Israel is officially divided into two states. Many of us have been watching for the creation of a Palestinian state for a long time, and now we might be right on the verge of it happening. When Donald Trump takes office, he would not be able to reverse the creation of a Palestinian state. But one thing that he could do would be to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. If that happens, the Palestinians are promising to throw a massive temper tantrum when asked how the Palestinians would react if Trump carried out the promise to move the US embassy to Jerusalem, Iraq, Iraq reportedly said the Palestinian liberation organization, otherwise known as the PLO, would rescind its recognition of Israel and ask Arab states to expel their US envoys. Iraq, Iraq made precisely that threat in December 19th conference, a conference call organized by the Wilson Center Policy Forum. He said he would immediately resign as chief Palestinian negotiator and that the PLO will revoke its recognition of Israel as well as previously signed agreements with Israel. Furthermore, said Iraq, all American embassies in the Arab world would be forced to close not necessarily because Arab leadership wouldn't want to close them, but because the infuriated public in the Arab world would not allow for the embassies to continue to operate. Ultimately, everything that is happening now is setting the stage for the biggest war in the Middle East that we've ever seen. Forgive me, I need to read that verse again. Ultimately, Everything that is happening now is setting the stage for the biggest war in the Middle East that we have ever seen. So instead of a peace process being the solution, it's actually going to cause the Middle East to explode in violence. As we have been talking about in just a couple weeks, we're gonna be in Ezekiel chapter 38, which is the three major powers coming against Jerusalem. They happen to be Russia, Iran, and Syria and the stage, is, the stage is set. So all of a sudden, Zechariah's prophecy becomes very, very interesting. He said there's gonna come a time that the focal point and the problem in the whole world is gonna be Jerusalem. I'm gonna make it like a, a burdensome stone even if all the nations, UN, would decide to come against, against it. The focus of the world on Israel and the UN and its Resolution 2334, a two-state solution, and it's been the first time that we have abstained. We could have, this thing should have never happened. We should have done what we've always done and used our veto power to veto it. Um, So if I would put things in a chronological order, I'll go through them quickly where I believe we're at right now. And I think just as Ezekiel knew Just as Daniel knew, it's late. And uh, pretty much time is up. And half the world has its head in the sand. Most of the church doesn't have a clue of what's happening. And um, next Sunday is just going to be, in their minds, thinking something more about what the Packers might (laughs) might be up to than this unbelievable meeting that's taking place in Paris. I see the order of events going something like this. The Ezekiel 38 war, imminent. Uh, Or what could happen first is the destruction of Damascus, that's Isaiah chapter 17. The rapture of the church, the seven year great tribulation that follows, followed by the Lord's second coming, followed by the 1,000 year kingdom age that we've been praying for ever since we were baby kids, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That's after uh, the great tribulation. And then we have two chapters at the end of the Bible that speak of eternity, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. The Bible's clear about these things. And let me just add, Jesus said it has to happen. It has to happen. There has to be a rapture which takes us back to Matthew chapter 24. And remember I told you the sign. Jesus gave a lot of signs, but the disciples want to know what was the sign of all these things being fulfilled. If you go back to Matthew 24, in verse 32, we have the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree is always a symbol of Israel. And he says, now learn this parable from the fig tree when the branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that it is near. It's born again. It hasn't been there since 70 AD. But when Israel comes back again, and there's life in it, like springtime when leaves come, so when you see Israel come back, basically, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near the very end of the door. Did you guys grab that? Israel will be 70 years old next year as a nation. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words, uh, not by any means. So we have the parable of the fig tree. Talk about the regathering of um, the fulfillment of all things but that has to include the rapture. So now, the very next thing that, that the Lord says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now we're talking about the rapture. Because we know to the day, the first coming of Jesus, Daniel 9. We know the day of the second coming of Christ, Daniel chapter 12, to the day, but we don't know the time of the rapture. But he gives us clues. And the first clue he gives us is going to be like the days of Noah, um, where so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, What were the days of Noah like? Life goes on. by obada, life goes on. You want me to just keep singing? No, don't sing. Please, Please don't sing. All right. But that's the way it was. It was a laid back kickback. Everything's fine. Big game this afternoon. And um, you know eating and drinking, marrying, giving in a marriage until until the day that Noah entered the ark. Until the day that the Lord takes the church out. The world is going to change overnight. But there's going to be no preceding signs because it's going to be oh ba-dee, oh Life goes on. And did not know Until the flood came and took them away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be working at Walmart. One will be taken, oh, that's not Walmart, oh, Millstone. One will be taken and the other one left. Watch, therefore, watch for what? Well, Resolution 2334, January 15th, a peace conference where the nations are going to gather and decide, what are we are going to do with Jerusalem anyway? We have a problem with this country. It's always a problem. By the way, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. Never has been. There's never been a Palestinian homeland. Never. There are Arab Jordanians, there are Arab Syrians, there are, are Arab Egyptians. But Yasser Arafat coined the phrase Palestine palestinian It didn't, doesn't even exist. Pulled it out of thin air. Watch therefore for you not know what hour your Lord is coming. Uh, the, the, the rapture is an um, imminent event that has to take place. There has to be a rapture. But know this, that if the master of the house would have known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, just be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you did not expect him. Um, I'm going to put something. Um, let's see, do I want to do this here? No, not quite yet. Um, I want to give you some Old Testament pictures and a verse that I believe refers to the rapture of the church. Genesis chapter 5 gives us the genealogy of that first generation up to Noah. Uh, it says that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He was, 300, he was a young guy, only 360 years old. And he was walking with the Lord one day and the Lord just took him out. Then we have uh, what's significant about that is that he was taken out before the flood. In other words, he was taken out before Judgment. Therefore, I believe that Enoch is a picture and a type of the church. Very interesting scripture in Isaiah chapter 26. And I'll just quote it and let it speak for itself. He says, Come, my people, enter into your chambers, and then shut the doors behind you and and hide yourself, as it were, for just a little moment until the indignation is past." I told you earlier, that's one of the names for the great tribulation, the indignation. Enter your chambers, stay there just for a little while, seven years, until the indignation is past. And then it says, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will also disclose her blood, and she shall no more cover her slain you guys stay in your chambers and stay there until I come and take care of the great tribulation. And he says, unless I do that, no flesh shall be saved. But what I see a picture of here, and I see a pattern beginning to emerge, and for this you need to turn back to the book of Genesis. Chapter 6. God told Ezekiel, I looked for a man to warn, to stand in the gap. He says, I couldn't find one. Here we're told in Genesis chapter six that men's thought were only evil continually. Everybody. Except for one person. And um, in verse eight it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah and his family were the only ones that were taken up and they had to be taken up because he was found he found grace by the way have you found grace well i should say grace found me but it's because of grace that we stand noah found grace and as a result of the grace he escaped the judgment well how did he escape the judgment well he was taken up in a boat and when the judgment was over he came down he came down on the 19th of nisan, on the 17th of nisan We read that in um, uh, chapter eight, verse four. The ark rested on the seventh month, the 17th day of the month. That would be the 17th day of Nisan. And you say, so what? What's so significant about the 17th of Nisan? Well, it's three days after the 14th of Nisan. Well, what's so significant about that? We call it Passover. The day when when, um, the Lord was crucified, as the Passover lamb, and anything of significance happened three days later? Oh yeah, the resurrection. The work is over. He's now at rest. And um, that's not by coincidence in any way, shape, or form. But the pattern of the picture is intriguing. You find grace. You're taken up from judgment. Judgment is done. And then, um, you know, the Lord, Lord starts all over again. Um, Jesus speaks of, of these chambers in um, John 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. In my Father's house are many mansions or chambers. If it were so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go out and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be there also. Turn to chapter 18 of Genesis. And without going through all of this, I want want you again to see the pattern. The Lord has appeared appeared to, to Abraham with two angels, and they have an appointment with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord stops and talks with Abraham about what he's going to do. He says, we're on our way to take out Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, immediately, Abraham's heart goes out because his nephew, Lot, is living with his family in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's worried, and he has a very honest question that he wants to ask the Lord. We find it in verse 23. He says, um, in verse 23, Abraham came near, and he said, now, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous in the city. Would you destroy the place if there was only 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall you not judge all of the earth and do right? And it was a fair, honest question. And the Lord answered back, no, I won't. Not if there's 50. Well, you know this story. What about 40? No, I won't destroy it for 40. Well, what about 30? 20? Lord, don't get mad. I'll say it one more time. Say there's only 10 people there. And believe me, Lot's counting. He's got Lot and his wife, his, his daughters. That are, uh, there's eight. So there's got to be two others in town. He says, I'll stop at 10. He said, Lord, what if there's only 10? Would you still destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, no, I won't. For the sake of the 10, because that's the right thing to do. All that to bring me to my main point, and that is, if you look at 19, verse 23, when they get the news, the angels tell Lot what's about to happen, the rest of the family laughs out loud. <laughs> that's crazy. You're telling me that fire is gonna fall from heaven and we're all gonna be destroyed. Well, yeah, that's what we're saying. And they lollygagged gagged around and they didn't take it seriously. Just like many do not take the rapture of the church seriously in the lateness of the hour. But I want you to notice verse 23. For in uh, verse 22, the angels have to take him by the hand and drag him out of town. For they said, hurry, escape, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Well, why can't they do anything? Because the Lord will not judge the righteous and the unrighteous. He has to remove them. And that is why there must be a rapture. You know that most of Christianity today, mainline denominations, Roman Catholicism, they don't believe in the the rapture. Um, Roman Catholicism believes in dominion. Come on, Dwight, you can say it. Kingdom now theology. (laughs) Dominionism. That's what they hold to. Over a billion people. And so I want to put something up on the screen now as we wind this up, which means we got about 10 minutes left. And on the screen, because there's confusion over the rapture of the church, I agree with all but one of these statements here, and I'll point it out when I get to it. The difference between the rapture, there has to be a rapture. Why? Because there are many righteous people that are born again all over the world. And if this is a great tribulation that's going to affect the whole world, then the Lord has to have a, um, an escape plan, just as he did for Noah, just as he did for Lot. So in the rapture, the, trans, the translation of all believers, and then I give you the scriptures. At the second coming, there's no translation. At the rapture, the translated go to heaven. At the second coming, the translated saints return to earth. In the rapture, the earth not judged, but at the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. It's taken out, of course, before. The reason they have to be taken out is because of the great tribulation. The rapture happens at any moment and it's signless. No man knows the day or the hour. The second coming Follows definite predicted signs. They should have Daniel chapter 12 in there that gives it to the very day. Now this one here I don't totally agree with. The rapture is not in the Old Testament. I believe there's pictures and types of it and I believe Isaiah 26 is speaking exactly about the rapture. But the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Um, The rapture is before the day of wrath. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.9. And the second coming concludes the day of wrath. At the rapture, he comes in the air for his own to claim his bride. And at the second coming, he comes to the earth with his own, with his bride. At the rapture, only his own see him. At the second coming, every eye will see him. The rapture, the tribulation begins. The second coming, the millennial kingdom begins. Now, as we do wrap this up this morning, um, I'm going to have you turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I can't even begin to bring to words the significance of what has happened in Resolution 2334. Our country not videoing it, and then being emboldened, having this major peace conference in Paris on the 15th of this month and all of this is leading up to most of the church is not aware of this and it will catch the earth off guard I personally believe that we have been preconditioned through Hollywood I'll admit I'm a Trekkie okay I admit it Spock and I share same birthdays what can I say live long and prosper for those of you who's, who are watching well, you know I can't do it. <laughs> but ever since Hangar 51, how many movies are out there today uh, leave the impression that we're, there's somebody else out there? And the bottom line is what the Thessalonians says, that there's going to be a strong delusion and they're going to believe the lie. You ever wonder what the lie is? Well how do you explain the disappearance of millions of people? Unless you have a higher civilization, much more sophisticated and intelligent, who have billions of years of evolution in front of them. And we were simply planted and seeded here and now they've come out and see that we're about ready to destroy ourselves, so we better step in and get rid of the bad guys. And I I believe Hollywood has preconditioned our thinking to that. And I know that's a little bit out there, but sometimes I like to go where no man has boldly gone before, and so sometimes I do. But if you think it through, our young people today think that way, and um, they're Trekkies and Star Wars, and um, and now Princess Lee is dead, and her mom dies the day before. You know, that's just stuff that's happening that I find very. Very, very interesting. But if you're in First Thessalonians 5, Paul said to these young Christians, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. For you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. We're supposed to know is the point. And so when I say there must be a rapture, there must be a rapture. Why? Because of Abraham's question. Lord, are you going to judge the righteous with the unrighteous? Jesus clearly said there's coming a judgment upon this earth that has never been or will ever be. Are we going to believe that or not? And if we do believe it, Lord, you've got a problem. Because if you're going to bring that judgment, there's a whole lot of people who love you, and we're your bride. And so I ask the question, Lord, are you going to, are you going to lead your church uh, into, for a honeymoon into the Great Tribulation period? No. Revelation six is the opening of the seal judgments. The first seal is the Antichrist himself. Second Thessalonians says that the Antichrist has to come first, and that's what Revelation six says. But if you look at verse seventeen and also in verse four um, for those who hold to this mid-trib view, well, we're not, the mid-trib isn't until 11 and 12. This is the fourth seal, and in the fourth seal we have, because of the famines and death and pestilence, we have one quarter, it says in verse 8, and um, power was given to have power over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, famine with death, and the beasts of the earth. And if you're telling, I, I, I googled how many people are on the planet. 7.28 billion people on the earth. That means even before you get to the fifth seal, you have almost 2 billion people dying. Gang, if you don't call that tribulation, I don't know what is. A quarter of the earth's population. So <clears throat> what are we to do in all this? we we'll know that the Lord has a plan. As we see all these things, we're not to freak out. But I think it's one of the greatest witnessing tools we can have because a lot of people are wondering, what's this all about? And I don't want to be a Pharisee that doesn't have a clue and tell people we don't know when Paul tells us we're the ones that should know so that we can comfort the people. Last verse, Luke 21, verse 36. Watch, therefore, and pray. That means occupy. Watch, therefore, and pray always. Why? That you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Well, how can you escape? There has to be a rapture. That these things will come to pass and then to stand before the Son of Man. The rapture of the church The great Bema Seat Judgment, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So, we live in exciting times. Are they happy times? No. Were they happy times at Ezekiel's time? No. Did everything that he said come to pass after 40 years of people not listening to him? Yes. Did everything that Noah said for 120 years, did that come to pass? Yes. Even though nothing like it had ever happened before. You see, it never rained before. And here's this crazy old man building a boat out in the desert and telling people it's going to rain, and they're going to drown. and he told them that for a whole generation. Question did it happen? Did it happen? Is the great tribulation going to happen? It's going to happen. Does the Lord have a plan for you and I? He's a standard, and it's an honest question. Abraham, Lord, would you you're, you're, you're the judge of the whole earth. Will you not do right? Are you going to judge the righteous with the unrighteous? No, I'm not. I have a plan. There must be the rapture. Amen? Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. Lord, I know I went long this morning. But I pray now that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would would open up eyes this morning. I pray especially for those who might be hearing all this stuff for the first time and simply their minds are getting blown. And I pray for any that feel that they might not be found worthy to escape those things that are coming. So in closing, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, that you have those that you deem righteous, not because we are, but because you made us righteous because you died for our sins on Calvary's cross. And we become your bride. And Lord, we do pray that you'd come quickly but we're also told to occupy. So in the meantime, Lord, I pray for any that are not born again here this morning or watching live stream, that they would wake up to what's going on, that they would say there's a whole lot more to the Bible than I ever knew, and that they would um, agree that everything that you said would come to pass, indeed will come to pass. And I pray that, um, as your word says, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart, but open your heart, repent of your sins, and ask Jesus to come in and give you a new life and a new heart. These things I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.